Paul has summed up an expression of the absolute wretchedness of the society in which they live. Individuals who are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness and haters of God and inventors of evil things and on and on he goes, unforgiving and unloving and unmerciful. And then he says in verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death not only do the same, but also approve or find pleasure in those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, you're going to recall, as we've kind of referenced by the passage that we read, and starting by verse 32 of Romans chapter 1, that Paul is building an argument. At the very beginning of this argument, he has declared that he is not ashamed of the gospel of God for it's the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. Then he goes on to say that it's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed to those who have faith. And then he goes on to say that in the gospels, the wrath of God is also revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men to those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And this is an argument that he's building for us out of all that he's saying. Paul is revealing to us the gospel. The gospel is the message of another in our place. Someone who has lived the sinless, righteous life that we have been commanded to live, but we've not lived. And someone who in our place has then gone and experienced the penalty, the righteous penalty against our sin and our breaking of those commands in our place. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel by which we realize the righteousness of God because he's done all righteousness for us in our place. And we realize the righteousness of God coming upon us when we believe and trust in him. And we also realize the righteousness of God because he has endured the penalty of a righteous God against our sins in our place. It's such a wonderful truth, such a wonderful gospel, and it comes to us and it's realized by us by faith alone. We receive it. We take it unto ourselves and we believe it. There's no other way for us to enter into this righteousness and there's no other way for us to escape the just judgment of God than by faith. Now Paul says that not only is this righteousness of God revealed through the gospel, but the wrath of God is also revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so in the text before us, Paul is going to identify the person who thinks that he can cover his sins by moralizing. He's going to speak to that individual and he's going to say, and soon, by the way, he's going to address another person. He's going to address the person who thinks that he can cover his sins by moralizing and he's going to address another person who thinks that he can cover his sins by religiosity. And Paul is going to make an argument as he's been going along that there's no way in which man, by his moral conduct or by his religious activity, can cover his sins. There's only one way in which his sins can be covered and it's to be covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ provided for him. That righteousness that God provides through the offering of his son alone. And that's the gospel. And in order to build this case, Paul has to also demonstrate that not only have all men sinned, but that all men are justly under the wrath of God. That they're facing God's judgment. And so this is the case that Paul sets out to make at the very beginning. 
And in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul sets before those he's writing, in a sense, the most obvious example of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He turns to the society that they live in. He projects his vision and their vision that he's writing to, to the behavior and the patterns of the pagan society of the Roman world. If you read the passage, and we have, it's one of the darkest passages in Scripture. It's bleak, and it's dark, and it's a terrible indictment. As Paul is writing it, he's giving this portrait of the festering sin that is bubbling up beneath and spewing itself out in ransom expressions within the idolatrous city of Rome itself. And Paul knows that his portrait is accurate. Paul knows that what he's saying, these individuals who are reading it, who are reading it with any sensitivity whatsoever, can identify exactly what Paul is telling and what Paul is saying. And, and he knows that something of the portrait that he's giving these individuals, that they will find it repugnant. Even if it's true in themselves, they'll find it repugnant. Nobody likes to be shown the awfulness of their sin. Nobody likes to be forced to look in a mirror and truly see themselves, and that's what he's doing. He knows that when they see it as well, they'll draw back from what they see in the society around them. But here's what I want to say. Be careful. Be careful when you come to the end of chapter 1 because Paul is setting a trap for us. Paul is laying out an argument where he goes to the most obvious things. And he knows that as we listen to it and reread these things that our heads are going to bob in agreement. He knows that we're going to look at this and we might even look at one another. And those who were reading it at that time and reading it together as the letter was being read to them were looking back and forth at one another and Paul knew that they were going to be saying things like, you know, what Paul is saying is true. This is true. These are dark and sinful times. We're we're surrounded by the foulness of sin throughout the world and the city in which we live. It's, It's most certain that God is going to judge the awful behavior. He can't help but drudge it. It's too bad. It's too terrible. And... They might have even listened with a solemnity about them and they may have even said things like amen, amen. But be careful to what you say amen to. By the way, that was actually kind of the title is thinking about naming it. Be careful what you say amen to. Another title for our message could be without excuse, without excuse. Because as they're pronouncing these things and saying these things and recognizing these things, Paul is setting his trap one that's going to expose them to their own need of the gospel, their moral reactions of repugnance, their instinct to judge the wrong behavior and the destructive acts of evil that are surrounding them, and the very capacity they have to condemn the wrong in others and also to commend the right in others as well, establishes the fact that they themselves are accountable for their own actions. It doesn't exonerate them or make them righteous just because they can recognize blatant evil. Quite the opposite. It reveals that they know that there's a standard of right and wrong, a standard that they themselves have not kept. In part their own standard, in part their own idea of what's appropriate and what's good that will speak against them in the day of judgment and reveal to them that they themselves are sinners. And so, as they've been referenced to Romans chapter 1 through 18, where they see that God shows that his wrath is against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, Paul is making a point. And it's that they, as they stand before that sentence and that declaration, they have to be careful. They can't act as though they're at the judgment seat judging those. They're at the bar before the judge. And when you're at the bar before the judge, you don't turn away from the judge and judge those around you. Say, well, there, 
They're really terrible, wicked people. It's not appropriate. It's not right. This is the position they seem to be taking, and Paul recognizes it. I want you to see something. Look at the passage here. Look at how dramatically Paul turns the table in his letter. Up to this point in time, he's been speaking about the sinfulness in the society around him. He's been addressing a plurality of individuals. So in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul is describing or he's confronting, if you will, the behavior that has spread itself throughout all of the society, throughout all of the Roman society. So he's speaking against people and a plurality of people. But in Romans 2, his finger turns from the group. And verbally, in a sense, he singles out an individual within the group, an individual listener, and he speaks to this individual directly. This particular person who is not foreign in any one of us, who rises up within us from time to time when we identify how awful things are around us, he speaks to the moralist who finds the behavior of those around them wrong and inappropriate. They're indignant at the sins of others and can't even help themselves but cast judgment against them. And in that moment of indignation, by the way, that's quite understandable if you listen to and you read Romans 1, verses 18 through 32 carefully. Read it and see if you don't have a sense of indignation at those things, these awful things. And he turns then to the person who's feeling that indignation. In that very moment, he says, you... You are inexcusable, O oh person, O oh man, whoever you are who judge. So let's follow this case that Paul is making. He's not primarily arguing that we are all sinners. That's too easy a case for him. He's arguing that as sinners, we're all deserving of God's judgment, and there's no way to cover your sins by your activities or by your behavior other than what God has provided. Here's Paul's basic argument at this point. He turns to this moralistic person. He turns to that person who rises up within us to justify ourselves because we see the wrong of everything that's being done around us and it makes us feel a little bit better even though it's so terrible what's going on in our world. And Paul's argument goes something like this. You are not saved by making moral judgments of right and wrong. Furthermore, you are actually condemned by those very moral judgments that you're making. And furthermore, you're not only condemned by them because you make the judgments, but you're condemned by them because you practice the thing that you judge to be wrong. There's his argument. That's what he's saying. Let's look at these three points. Uh, By the way, as we go through this message, if at any point you think, I wish such and such was here to hear this message, I, I hope they hear this then the message has completely gone over your head. (laughs) You've missed the whole point that Paul is making here. Paul brings it down to, oh, you man. And he's speaking to each and every one of us. And he's setting his finger upon our own hearts. Something we tend to do. Something we are want to do. The impulse, the natural impulse we react to in order to justify ourselves. And he strips away this common act of self-justification, seeing how wrong everything is around us. He says, no, this making of a moral judgment of right and wrong does not save you. And here are two subpoints under this first point, that the making of a moral judgment of right and wrong does not save you. And the first one is this. Moralism is the path offered for salvation by every false religion. 
Moralism is the path offered by every false religion unto salvation. And the second thing is this, that the only thing that moralism truly establishes in anyone's life is that everyone knows enough of God's law to be guilty before it. The only thing that moralism establishes, knowing, being able to judge right and wrong, just is to establish that you know enough of God's law to be guilty before it. Amen, Paul. What you said was right. Our world is going down the tubes. As they say it, they step away from the world under judgment and consider themselves safe because, well, they know what the problem is. They know what the issues are, and this is the spirit of moralism. Moralism is the mistaken path to salvation, as we've said, offered by all human religions. It's the idea that you're saved by the works that you adhere to or the works that you set as your standard and your goal of goodness or by the works that you hope somehow to attain at some point in time. And maybe in your religion you have to project those works off to some distant future. Maybe you have to believe in some series of reincarnation till you get to that point or you believe that there's some purgatory or there's some progression in heaven before you until you reach that final point of moral perfection. But it is the means by which men seek to save themselves and seek to find their salvation. Well, here's where you begin, by the way, in this pursuit, this moralistic pursuit for your salvation. The beginning point is this. At least, at least, feel indignant about what other bad people are doing. You might struggle with this yourself, but at least have a sense of indignance at the sin that others are performing, and this will get you off on the right foot. That's the idea. Yeah, I have an app on my phone. You might have it as well. It's called the Next Door Neighbor app. I don't know if you have that. If you go on the Next Door Neighbor every once in a while, you'll discover all kinds of petty crimes that are happening in the community. And just this last week, one individual was pointing out the crime and actually had the picture of the woman who was encouraging her dog to actually do its morning business in his yard. So watch out for this lady. And then, and then another person posted a sign of somebody who had built a fence too high, close to an intersection. So it was obstructing the view when you pulled out in the intersection. And some child was going to get hurt as a result. And a, another person posted some message about someone who had come into their carport and had stolen one of their bicycles. And Now this is all kind of interesting stuff, but what's more interesting is to read the comments underneath it. Because once it's been posted, everybody chimes in and oh, the moralizing that takes place then as people castigate the person who has not taken responsibility for their dogs and what they do. And then another person speaks about how irresponsible that fence builder is. And then there's somebody else that always chimes in to try to show that we need to be a little more even-handed and we need to understand these things. Maybe the person, you don't know what the needs of that person, maybe they needed the bike more than you did, Right? And so back and forth go all the different moral posturing that takes place on that app. It's rather entertaining. and It ramps up and it just goes on its way. And at some point in time, individuals become quite sarcastic and unkind with one another. And they deprecate the view of another person as spoke or given their two cents worth on it. And on and on and on it goes. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this discussing and considering this kind of competition, this moralizing competition to prove yourself better than another, to make this the ground from which you earn your salvation, to be able to show that you know what's wrong and you know what's right and you're just a step ahead. He writes, the man who sits in judgment upon someone else whom he considers 
in an ethical scale below him is as foolish as the man who has reached the top of Mount Everest and who laughs at the man who has merely climbed the hill back of his house in a competition between the two to get to the moon. <laughs> doesn't matter. doesn't matter whether you're on Everest and he's on a little knoll. Retrospect to where it is you want to go and you think you need to go, you've not made any progress whatsoever. And you're not ever going to get there in that way. There is a validity here, by the way, in making judgments of right and wrong. That's not what we're saying here. That's not what Paul is not saying. There is a proper reporting of wrong things that are done, and there is a proper value in the social pressure around us that is used to some extent restrain us from bad behavior. It's good that we have neighbors, by the way, that peer into our windows at time, and you might not like it all the time, but when you're gone on a vacation, you're glad that they're around. It's handy at times. But Paul is not arguing against that. But Paul sees the motive behind much of this. It is a default position to accentuate one's own sense of self-righteousness. There's a tribute that the person is making when they make these indignant judgments. And the tribute they're paying is to themselves. And to their own way of seeing things. They can recognize that that thing is not as it should be. They can see that things are not quite right and they have a soul that recognizes basically what's good and basically what's wrong and even if they let some things slide and they are not perfect themselves they at least can see how bad things can get and so it tells them that deep down really they're a good person they're making the right start here they're getting off in the right place and to their minds this is something of their own salvation I once had an individual who said to me quite earnestly for some little nicety I had done and it was a very inconsequential thing but he said I'm sure you're going to get to heaven you're a good person and what he meant to say I know was I'm sure we're going to get to heaven right we're good people we see these things and we know what are good things to do just because you can judge wrong and right around you does not mean you're going to heaven or that you're a good person that's the second point here the second point is this. It only means that you know enough of the standard by which God will judge you to be without excuse on the day of his judgment. You knew what was right. You knew what was wrong. Before a holy and sinless and pure God, you knew what he required of you. It's to some extent, in some way, enough, you knew enough that, Paul writes, you're without excuse this underscores, by the way, now the next point here, and it's this. So those were two subpoints under our first point that uh, moralism is the false religion or the way which people seek to save themselves. But here's a second point. Furthermore, you're actually not saved by your moralism. You're actually condemned by those very judgments, those very moral judgments that you make. That's the second point. You're condemned by your capacity and ability to make moral judgments. That we can see or recognize what is wrong is simply because, and this is the case for the most part, that you can see and recognize what is wrong is simply because, you might not agree with me here, but consider it. It's because you have a point of identity with that wrong thing that resonates in your own heart. That you can see what is wrong is because that wrong thing runs some way resonates in your own heart. That's the idea that Paul is putting before us. You're sensitive in judgment 
quite often to those very things that deep down you know against your own selves. I discovered, for example, that parents oftentimes have less patience with the child that is most like them. They see the error of that child because that kid is mirroring their own development and the way they behave, and they're just one step ahead of them. It irritates them and annoys them, not because the child is irritable, but because the child is quietly, without them knowing, revealing what's still in their own hearts, revealing what they're going through themselves. Often we accuse others of the attitudes and the behaviors that we most easily and regularly fall into ourselves. Freud knew this. Freud called it projecting. <laughs> we just project it on somebody else, but it's really our issue and our way of doing things. We just read this in the story of David when Nathan came and confronted David of his sins. And David is indignant to find out that there's a man that's done such a horrible thing as to have taken a little lamb from one poor man in his neighborhood. He, a rich man who had a large herd and sacrificed that lamb to feed his guests instead of sacrificing one of his own lambs. David is indignant at such a robbery and such a theft and such a cruelty and a harshness. Nathan says, David, it's you. It's what you've done. It's how you've behaved. The reason you're sensitive and aware of it is because it's in your own heart. Your judgment, your condemnation is against yourself. We see this all the time with individuals. I have through the course of my ministry, known a handful of women who had taken upon themselves to become banners of modesty, advertisements for modesty. And, you know, by the way, the word modesty comes from moderation. It's the idea of dressing in a proprietary way in a community. It's, it's understanding what the cultural norms are and dressing in such a way that you don't draw attention to yourself, but in a sense you moderately live within the community. But these individuals who were so committed to modesty were the most immodest people I'd met. They would have gone to a black tie affair with army boots and wearing an oak barrel around themselves to prove how modest they were. It wasn't modest. They were drawing attention to themselves in the demonstration of their modesty. This is what we're talking about. You can see something that you think is wrong and is not right. You want to demonstrate how wrong it is. And the very thing you do demonstrates it's in you. When I was in college, I discovered that all the college students had a propensity to advertise their spirituality. Right? We had this beautiful campus in Minnesota, and it used to be a, a Catholic monastery, and the chapel had these beautiful stone floors, and there was a stone walkway on either side of the chapel, and there were windows all along the chapel, and you could look in and see whoever was in the chapel, and so if you wanted to go and pray in the chapel, everybody knew you were praying in the chapel, right? And so you would see certain people having their devotions all the time, and it kind of irritated me. They were kind of showing off, I thought, and then they started forming little groups that would go and have their Bible study and their prayer time in the chapel as you walk by. And it was always at times when, you know, you couldn't be missed. So I decided that I wasn't going to be like that. I found that there was a little elevator that wasn't being used next to the, where the library was. And it was always empty and it was never in use. And I figured out how to open up the door to that shaft. And I found a place where I could go and just study and read my Bible by myself. But as I was enjoying that, I was becoming more and more indignant at the way other people were behaving. And so I remember going to a senior classman. I was a freshman at the time, and 
a number of senior castmen complaining about the behavior, this false spirituality that was out there doing all these things. I was silenced by one of them by him simply asking me, okay, Joel, I see what you're saying. Why are you telling me this? <laughs> what are you demonstrating about yourself and telling me this? He had trumped me. He had checkmated me. I was stuck. I was caught in my own net. I was advertising the spirituality of praying by myself in the elevator shaft that I had discovered. I'd just done it to you. <laughs> and I was guilty. You'll find a man who decries the sensuality of some woman's appearance as well and how terrible it is. And it's not that the story that Nathan told was not a story of a grave injustice. It's not that immodesty is not a form of self-glorification or that sensuality is not something that a woman should pass out and barter around, but one that she should guard against. It's just that the spirit that rises against it is often in one who shares a similar disposition of sin. That's why we see it. The right response to Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, read it. The right response is not, most certainly these individuals deserve God's wrath, amen, amen. It's to see the threads of evil that rise up from the heart of each individual person who's not standing in the face of God and whose heart is prone to turn away from the living God. And the right response is, oh God, be merciful to us. Oh God, save them. Oh God, save me. Oh God, turn them back to yourself. Oh God, turn me back to your own ways. Oh God, break their hearts for their callousness. Oh God, break my heart. Keep my heart soft before you in your good and righteous presence. That's the right response. This is why when we're told in Jude that when you're dealing with a person who's been caught in some awful sin, we're told that in, in Jude chapter 123 that we're to attempt to draw them away from their sins and bring them into repentance, but we're to do it this way. It says, save them with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. What's the fear here? It is that understanding that these very proclivities to sin are in you and can be found in you. It's the fear that you will forget and approach them in some sense of your own moral goodness and miss that this sin is contagious and that the spore of sin still roils in your own flesh. You turn into God on those occasions and you say, God, protect me. And keep me in your grace as I seek to draw this one away from their sin and bring them to yourself. Listen, there is wonderful, powerful grace that is available to us in these situations. A grace that keeps us and preserves us and sustains us in God's holy and perfect will. But it's a grace that is not in us. It's not us. It's God's provision. It's his life. And it's realized by us when we turn into him. So, your application for you. When you find yourself bitter and angry at someone over a sin that they've committed, be careful. Pray for them. Intercede for them. Don't do it from a distance. Go near to them. And then come before God as one needing mercy along with them. Keep in mind that your awareness of their sin and your offense towards that sin may be because 
the same sin on some level can be found in you, right? That's what's being said here. You know, the problem is that we judge the things that resonate in our own hearts, but we're indignant at the behavior of others and we're indulgent with ourselves, right? We have our ways of justifying ourselves. We may be wrong, but we meant well. We may be wrong, but we have a heightened sensitivity to what is good. We may be wrong, but we're trying our best and working hard, and at least we're striving against these things. The point of reference in the moralist judgments may seem to be God. It may seem to be his law. That's what the Pharisees appeared like. They were these moralistic men who seemed to be appealing to God's law and to God himself. But in actuality, the reference point in their judgment was their own sinfulness, hiding in disguise under a veneer of moral achievement. In this case, they felt indignant and they felt contempt towards others who were not like them. And we can feel the same way. We're filled with bitterness and a sense of our being somewhat better or aloof from them. If you say it, catch, slap your hand over your mouth, go before God. When you say something like, who does that? Right? Caution. Caution. Oh, man. You demonstrate that you're without excuse. We're reacting to that thing that approximates the sin that we have in our own lives. We feel morally superior. This is the posture that Paul is pointedly expressing and condemning in this passage. Oh, man, you're without excuse. You, he says, condemn the sin in them that you refuse to see in yourself. They, like it says in verse 32, they do these things and take pleasure in those who do them. You do these things and then you turn around and condemn those who do the same thing that you do. Which is worse? Which is more available or deserving of God's judgment? That's what Paul is saying. Now, I didn't see myself so much in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. But I see myself in Romans 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's the third point. You're condemned by your judgments against others because you practice the things you judge to be wrong. Now, Paul's not saying, he says here, you practice the same things you judge what you practice, the same things you practice. But he's not saying here that they do precisely the same things. He's only saying that on some level they break the same standards. Paul is bringing us back to the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord Jesus' teaching. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5. Let's just read a few verses, just a couple examples of what Paul is referring to, this idea that you do the same things yourself. Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. You remember what the Lord Jesus said is that our righteousness to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and there's only one who's offered that righteousness ever, and it's Jesus Christ. If you get through the end of Romans chapter 2 and you think that you've made it and you've accomplished the righteousness that will get you to heaven because you find a couple verses in there that say that God will judge us by our works, and you say, I'm one of those, Right? You didn't read to the end, and you didn't understand the beginning of it. You haven't comprehended it. It indicts all of us. It shows all of us that we're sinners. Here's what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. 
But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, ye fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. See? It's in you. How about verses 27 and 28 of that same chapter? And you have heard that it said of those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You do the same things, you who judge, you who condemn. Let's make some conclusions here. The first conclusion is to note this. Sin is expressed at different layers or levels, and we rarely recognize the layer of sin that is being expressed from our own lives. It's the same sin, just on different layers. Back to Barnhouse's account of the man who's trying to climb out Mount Everest and mocking the man who's only climbed the little hill behind his house as they're both competing with one another to get to the moon. Barnhouse points out that the man on Mount Everest, the man who has realized his sense of moral superiority because he doesn't do what the other person does and he's made better achievements than the other individual, that he's actually the one who's most in danger. Here's the rest of his quote. In more than one sense, the man who has reached the top of Everest is no closer to the moon than the man on the lowly hilltop. Indeed, the man on the hill might be nearer a field where a rocket might conceivably take off to the moon. He might well outdistance the climber of the Himalayas. He would have no pride that would tie him to his lowly summit, which the mountaineer who has scaled the loftiest height might hold it through some exaggerated idea of his attainment. Your moral goodness, your ability to do the right thing may endanger you from realizing the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Be forewarned. That's what Paul is saying. We must beware of moral pride revealed in moral indignation, an indignation that indulges our own failings or misses them altogether. Heaven comes to those who bow to the earth and kiss the pierced feet of the one who died for them and suffered for all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men so that we might be forgiven and made right in him alone. Stay lowly, stay low. Here's another thing, and it will be the last thing. Finally, it's this. There is a righteous judgment of right and wrong that we can render. We are called to do it many times within Scripture. There is a righteous judgment of right and wrong that we are to render, and it is done when referencing God, His absolutes of purity and goodness and righteousness. It is done when we turn to His light, for the Bible says, in His light we see light. That is, when we turn to the righteousness and the light of God is, He clarifies what is right and good before us. And at the same time, when we turn to His light, He makes known what is dark and what is sin. So there's a way to judge. It's turning towards Him. But when judging in this way, we don't find ourselves standing far off from the one that's being judged and the thing that's being judged and coming into the company of God and thinking, God and I think this is wrong. God and I see what a terrible thing this is. No. When we judge in this way, 
from the presence of a holy God that we live before. In the sin of others, we see our own sin. In the judgment others are coming to, we see the judgment that we deserve ourselves, that we can only be freed from through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and our clinging faith to Him. We feel fear and we feel awe and we cry for mercy at the terribleness of the coming judgment. And we say to those that we're judging even, run, flee, turn. And we speak to them not as angels blowing trumpets of judgment, but as sinners who have found the safe ground of the cross in Jesus Christ and we're calling people to join us. Join us above the tide of God's wrath and God's judgment and be safe with us here. Here is safety, come here. We go among them and we pray for them and we say, God have mercy for our iniquities are great. We come to them in sorrow and we first take care with this view to remove any beam from our own eyes before seeking to remove the splinter from theirs. Now the Bible says, Paul says in another book, that one day we'll judge angels. But we're not ready for that day just yet. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Oh God, help me to differentiate between self-righteous indignation and the holy passion for yourself. Help me to see that the first suggestion of sin that comes to my mind when I am viewing the wrong before your presence is to see the potential in my own life and cling to you and draw more near to you and find more dear the blood that washes and cleanses us. The blood of Jesus Christ that makes the foulest clean. Lord, if I might have that mindset, I might say all the time, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in Thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint, heal the sick and lead the blind. And Lord, I'm the fallen and the faint and the sick and the blind. Just and holy is Your name. I am all in righteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. Plenteous grace with thee is found. Grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound. Make and keep me pure within. Thou of life the fountain art. Freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. Rise to all eternity. Jesus, so purify your people. The kingdom of priests, intercessors to our God in a dark land that needs the light that only you can give, the light that you would give through us as we stand before you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.